This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score Lecture Series, made possible by the University's Office of Engagement. On October 1st, the topic was The American Civil War on Film, How Holiday Shapes What We Know. The lecture was introduced by Tom Falders, president of the UVA Alumni Association. Uh, it's my honor to, uh, this morning to introduce Gary W. Gallagher, who is the John L. Now III Professor of History of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. Uh, Gary's a native of Los Angeles. He received his BA from Adams State College in Colorado in 1972, his master's and PhD uh, from the University of Texas, master's in 77, PhD in 82, University of Te Texas in Austin. He taught for 12 years at Penn State University, and we were very fortunate to steal him away from Penn State in 1998. I think he really wanted to get back to the heart of the Confederacy based on everything he writes. <clears throat> He's the author of more than 30 books, including The Confederate War, Lee and His Generals in the War and Memory, The Myth of the Lost Cause in the Civil War History, uh, Causes One, Lost and Forgotten, How Hollywood and Popular Art Shape What We Know About the Civil War Today, which clearly will be the basis of his comments today, uh, and The Union War. He also serves as editor of two uh, book series out of the University of North Carolina, uh, Civil War America and Military Campaigns of the Civil War. He's appeared regularly on Arts and Entertainment Network uh, series, The Civil War Journal, as well as participating in more than three dozen other television projects on the, on the subject. He's also the recipient of the Cavaliers Distinguished Teaching Professorship uh, 2010 to, through 2012, the highest teaching award conveyed by the University of Virginia. I should also say there are a lot of students in the audience, and he's one of the most popular professors among the students today. Active in the field of historic preservation, he was a president from 1987 to 1994 of the Association of Preservation of Civil War Sites. It's an organization with membership of over 12,500 people in all 50 states. He's also served as a member of the board of the Civil War Trust and has given testimony about preservation uh, before congressional committees on several occasions. So please welcome Professor Gary Gallagher. Althea gave me very specific instructions not to talk more than 40 minutes this morning, 40 minutes total, she said, and then five or 10 minutes for give and take with all of you uh, at the end. And so that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna talk for 40 minutes and try to cover most of what I think I wanna cover. If I don't, none of you will know it, so your lives won't be diminished. <laughs> I have two parts to this presentation today. One is a lecture, which is what I always do, and the other is PowerPoint, which I never ever do. I'm, I'm absolutely opposed to technology of any kind. I haven't even come to terms with the 20th century yet, never mind the 21st century. And so this is the only talk that I've ever given that has visuals with it by students. They don't get anything in my class, chalk and a blackboard, nothing else, nothing else. It's sort of an anthropological experience for them uh, to be in a class uh, where they're not awash in images and noise and all the other things that I think distract them in a world that's already full of distractions. But I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to talk to you first and then use about, not about, exactly 18 stills from a number of films to illustrate some of the points that I'm going to make in my talk. So it's two parts. That way my brain doesn't have to try to mingle images with what I'm saying. Uh, I'm just going to say some things and then I'm going to show you 
some stills from films. And I want to start by saying in this year that is the beginning of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, that when you try to understand the past, it's always important to remember that history and memory are two different things. They are not the same thing, although people often aren't aware of that. History happens. Uh, in my world, some <clears throat> people argue that there isn't anything uh, such as history. It's actually just different memories of history. That can only happen in academia, of course, something that ludicrous. But it... <laughs> There actually is history. Something's happening right now. You're sitting there, I'm saying specific things. This is happening. You're going to remember it differently. There'll be any number of memories of what is happening this morning. Some happy, some may require counseling. You can't tell. <laughs> but the point is, those are two different things. And they intersect in some ways, but they are not the same thing. And memory often trumps history in terms of how we react to the past, because we engage with it according to what version of it comes down to us. That's how we respond to it. It doesn't really matter what actually happened. What matters is how we are told to understand what happened. Hollywood has a big role in shaping how we remember history. Uh, it's not, there's nothing anyone can do about it. Uh, some in my world, again, lament that and rail against it. It's just the way it is. Gone with the Wind has had more influence on how Americans understand the Civil War than everything that's been written by all historians since Gone with the Wind debuted in Atlanta in 1939. That's just the way it is. It's always available. Ted Turner loves it. It's on endlessly. <laughs> and so not only was it in release for a long time, it was still being released in theaters when I was in the mid-1970s. It was being released in theaters. It's had a tremendous impact, a tremendous impact. And so Hollywood is an important factor in how Americans understand their past. I have students come up to me too often, in fact, and say that they've seen The Patriot, and now they understand the American Revolution. <laughs> or they watched Oliver Stone's hallucinogenic take on the Kennedy assassination, and now they understand the Kennedy assassination. That's just, Oliver Stone is just as good a history as the Magic Loogie episode of Seinfeld. They're both exactly of the same value when it comes to understanding history. But my point is that people take these images away from films. And even the worst films, even, even the biggest bombs among films reach a far greater audience than the most successful books written by historians. Jim McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom is easily the most widely read book on the American Civil War of the last 25 years. Jim's book has sold about 800,000 or so copies. And he, that's not a secret. I mean, he, he says that too. 800,000 copies, even a really bad film, even a film that goes straight to DVD or whatever they go to now. I know DVDs are almost extinct now too. Even the worst film reaches a far, a far greater audience than that. So it matters what Hollywood does. Uh, and I'm interested in Holly, what Hollywood does because of that, because of its impact on how we understand history. I don't come at these films as a, as a film critic. I love movies. I'm sure all of you are well aware of the fact that Double Indemnity is the greatest movie ever made. I know that you understand that. And we can bond about that. Film noir is not only great, Double Indemnity is the best noir. Push that aside. I'm interested in these films as they relate to the world in which I make my living, 
trying to understand and talk about American history. And that's what I'm going to do today. And I'm especially interested in how Hollywood's treatment of the American Civil War either has or has not conveyed four great interpretive traditions that the Civil War generation itself put in place regarding the meaning of the war. There were four major ways in which those who actually experienced the war chose to remember it, things they emphasized. These four traditions emphasized very different things, as we'll see. And what interests me is how do those four great traditions, the meanings the war held for the people who experienced it, how do those resonate or not resonate now? In other words, what do we understand about their conception of the war, and what have we lost? And it's a very interesting set of remembrances and lost meanings, I think, when we come to the war. All right, let me talk about those four interpretive traditions very quickly, sketch them very quickly. The first was the Union cause remembrance of the war, and that was the most widely held by far, by far, because it was the memory that most of the loyal citizenry held. That is, the citizenry of the free states and the four slaveholding border states that remained in the United States during the war. We've got about 20 million people in that population, and the overwhelming majority of them would have said the most important thing about the Civil War is that it saved the Union. It saved the small-D democratic example of government in the world. It proved that a free people could have a role in their own governance and could have a chance to advance economically. They weren't locked into the class of their father and their grandfather. That's what set the United States apart from the rest of the world, they believed. They had a profound sense of American exceptionalism. And that is what the war represented to them, a direct threat to the exceptionalist role of the United States in the world. When Abraham Lincoln spoke of the United States as the last best hope of Earth, that's what he meant. So it was a war that not only had meaning for salvaging the work of the founding generation, but it also had meaning in terms of keeping democracy alive in a Western world where democracy was in retreat. The failed revolutions in Europe of the late 1840s had given the aristocrats and the oligarchs and the monarchists even greater power, and people in the United States were aware of that. So that is the Union cause memory. The Union cause also said the ending of slavery was good, but not for the reasons that we would want them to say it. It wasn't a great moral crusade for them. It was a way to help win the war against the Confederacy, to punish oligarchic slaveholders who had brought the whole problem on in the beginning, and to remove the one thing that they believed could threaten the United States from within, and that is the institution of slavery and all the ways that it caused problems. So that's the Union cause tradition. The second was the lost cause. That was the predominant memory of former Confederates. Former Confederates had to deal with this shattering defeat, and they came up with a memory of the war that said, number one, they never could have won the war. It was a hopeless effort against impossible odds. Of course, that's not what they said in 1861 and not what they believed in 1861 and wasn't true. They had a, a, a very good chance of establishing the Confederacy, but retrospectively they argued that. It wasn't about slavery, they said retrospectively. And they brought Robert E. Lee front and center. He was front and center during the war, but he was powerfully so after the war because you could talk about Lee and you could talk about his great victories against long odds. 
You didn't have to talk about slavery when you talked about R.E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia winning the great victory at Chancellorsville, for example. And you also portrayed in the Lost Cause vision of the war a southern population, a Confederate population made up of brave soldiers, patriotic women, and loyal slaves. That was an important part of the Lost Cause memory. That was held by most of the five and a half million white people who lived in the Confederacy. The third memory of the war was the Emancipation Cause. This was the predominant memory for black Americans who almost all lived in the slaveholding states then. The, the free states in 1860 were 98.8% white. 98.8. It's always important to remember that the past is a different country in many ways. We can't think of the United States now and try to imagine that the United States in 1860 looked like we do. But African Americans and white abolitionists would have said, yes, it's a good thing the Union was saved, but the most important thing is slavery's dead. That's the greatest outcome of this great war that has cost so many hundreds of thousands of lives. The fourth tradition, Union, lost cause, <coughs> emancipation. The fourth tradition was the reconciliation cause. And this was a version of the war that was adopted by some white people north and south in the late 19th century uh, that's been exaggerated, I think, in the historical literature, the degree to which this uh, memory of the war came to be dominant. It never became dominant, but it did argue that let's don't, it said let's don't talk about who was right and wrong. Let's don't talk about slavery. Let's don't talk about black people. Let's don't talk about emancipation. Let's talk about how the war was a showcase for American virtues among soldiers on both sides, virtues such as being brave in the face of very difficult situations, of being loyal to your cause, whatever that cause was, and we're not going to say which one was right and which one was wrong, and we're going to celebrate the fact that a great nation emerged from this tremendous internal trial and marched toward world power status in the late 19th century. If you want absolutely perfect examples of reconciliationist rhetoric, read Woodrow Wilson's comments at Gettysburg on the 50th anniversary of the battle, or FDR's comments at Gettysburg on the 75th anniversary of the battle, uh, 1913, 1938. They are absolutely perfect examples of comments that don't mention either cause, don't take sides between the two causes, and just offer tributes to the soldiers uh, who had either blue or gray uniforms on. Those are the four great traditions, and they overlap in some ways, uh, <clears throat> which I won't go into now because I don't have time. It's already almost 20 after 10, and we have to move along. <laughs> Thea's over there. She's, she's in the back, but I know that she's got, she has a great big watch that has a beeper on it, I think. <laughs> She said she'd help me keep track of time, but I have a big watch, too. <laughs> big enough so that I can even read it <laughs> without my glasses on. And since I don't have my glasses, that's good. <laughs> Those are the four traditions. Those are the four traditions. And I'll make the point once more. By far the most widely held of those four traditions among the generation that experienced the war was the Union cause tradition. That was it. That was the great meaning of the war. It's a very expansive meaning because it embraces emancipation, but union was the key. When you look at monuments 
on battlefields, uh, when you read books, when you read regimentals and so forth uh, from the time, look at the material culture of the war itself. Union is everywhere, everywhere. And it was everywhere in Lincoln's rhetoric too. Even at the end of the war, Lincoln was still arguing for union because he understood that that would pull in the broadest swath of the loyal citizenry in support of the war. 45% of the voters in the United States were Democrats. Democrats were adamantly opposed to emancipation. Adamantly. They didn't give a good goddamn about black people or getting rid of slavery. And so you can't appeal to them if you're Abraham Lincoln. You can't appeal to Democrats to put on a uniform and risk your life to end slavery. You have to go with union. And that is what he did. And he did it consistently. He did it even after he was reelected in 1864, even after the Republicans swept the elections in November 1864. Lincoln still emphasized union in his very next message to the United States Congress. He said, yes, we need to pass the 13th Amendment. It had already passed the Senate, but it hadn't gone through the House yet. Yes, we need to do that. But he said, in a great war such as this, and I'll paraphrase him, there has to be one central goal. And in this war, that goal is union. And emancipation is one of the tools that we'll use to achieve that goal. So there are are these four great traditions. All right, I looked at, I went back and looked at Civil War movies. There are really a lot of Civil War movies, almost no good ones, uh, but a lot of them. You have no idea how much anguish went into looking. I had to look at them more than once to, to get the quotations right. As I started to go through them, I had some ideas of what kind of themes I would find, but two major themes came through. Two major themes came through, and it's important how old I am here, which is really old, uh, and you know how old because you got the dates for my degrees. I'm so old that I remember the Civil War centennial very well. Uh, I was a kid in Colorado already enamored uh, with the Civil War when I was 10 or 11, and so I was very much attuned to what was going on uh, in the centennial, and I had ideas about, about the war, some of which I'd gotten from movies like The Horse Soldiers and other things like that. So I went back and looked at these movies, and these are the two principal themes that really emerged from watching all of these movies. I focused most uh, specifically on films since Glory, beginning with Glory, that's 1989, and coming down to now, in other words, most of these films are post-civil rights movement, post-Vietnam. And those are two really important factors in understanding how Hollywood has understood the Civil War most recently. I also went back, of course, and looked at the earlier ones just to get a, a broader frame. And we'll use stills from all of them. But the two principal themes are, first, that the lost cause is increasingly shunned by Hollywood. And this is interesting because for most of the middle part of the 20th century, anyway, the lost cause was the predominant understanding of the war on Hollywood's part. The two most important Civil War movies ever made by far, nothing else even close, are Birth of a Nation in 1915 and Gone with the Wind in 1939. And those are both powerful lost cause 
interpretations of the war, not with the key characters in Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara and, and Rhett Butler. They don't care about anything except themselves, so you don't count them. But all the other factors, <laughs> Scarlett's first thought when she wakes up every morning is, what about me? Uh, the, and so put her to the side. But the other characters in Gone with the Wind, it's all lost cause. Melanie sacrifices her wedding ring for the cause. Uh, off goes her long-suffering, and really, even as a kid, I couldn't understand why anybody would care about Ashley Wilkes. He seemed like he was barely awake to me, but anyway, he comes back from the war, and he has this wonderful speech to Scarlett. Scarlett's there all aflame with desire, and of course, he's somewhere else. And, and he talks about how his men don't even have shoes, and it's cold in the North, and there's so many Yankees, and they keep, it's a perfect expression of the hopeless fight against impossible odds. You get an idea sometimes that here the war comes down to Robert E. Lee. He's got 11 guys in his army, <laughs> and they only have five shoes among them. And Robert E. Lee is, looks across at the Yankees, and U.S. Grant has millions of Yankees, hirelings, Irishmen who've stumbled off the boat and don't even know where they are, and they're you get that sense from Gone with the Wind. And of course, Sherman. Sherman in Gone with the Wind and in Birth of a Nation, he's the great destroyer in one and the great invader in the other. These are very powerful lost cause statements. Reconstruction is an evil thing foisted upon the former Confederates by the exultant Yankees. You know these movies. Powerful, and many other movies followed those lost cause themes as well. That began to change with Shenandoah in 1965, a truly wretched movie that starring <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. I loved it as a kid. It didn't occur to me as a kid that it was odd that Confederate soldiers were in trees <laughs> shooting down at Federals. You can't load a Civil War musket in a tree, of course. <laughs> and that might be a key to Confederate defeat. You know, we might have won the battle, but our guys were in trees, and they could only shoot once. <laughs> it marked a turning point in that it goes away from the lost cause. But then Hollywood abandoned the Civil War for nearly 25 years, except for Westerns. There are always a lot of Westerns that deal with the Civil War, the outlaw Josie Wales and many others. It's 25 after, Althea. I'm keeping my eye on that. <laughs> There are a lot of Westerns that come out. They're sort of Westerns dressed up in Civil War garb. I'm not counting them. The next true Civil War movie after Shenandoah, which came out in 1965, was Glory, which came out in 1989. <clears throat> so the first thing that struck me is that the Lost Cause, which had been such a powerful, such a powerful presence in Hollywood's understanding of the war for so long, falls off a cliff beginning with glory. And since glory, it is less and less and less and less visible. The only film, there's a sort of aftershock, and I'll talk about this, of lost cause interpretive uh, approach with Gods and Generals, which came out in 2003. But other than that, no, other than that. So the lost cause is eroding. Uh, there's always uh, reconciliation causes. The lost cause goes what comes up into the foreground 
is the emancipation cause. And that makes sense, uh, considering when we're talking about. We're talking about a post-civil rights movement world. That makes sense. But glory was incredibly important in making that change. Gl glory literally reminded untold Americans that there were actually black soldiers in the Civil War. I was in New York City when Glory came out and went to a big theater and watched it, just sort of lurked uh, in the foyer afterward to listen to what the comments were of people coming out. I would say the audience was roughly half white and half black. By far the most common comment I heard from both black people and white people was some variation of, I didn't know there were black soldiers in the Civil War. I didn't, th this, is, this was a, a revelation to a lot of people. Black USCT troops, United States Colored Troops units, made up about 9% of all US forces uh, in the course of the war. But that memory, that part of the war, uh, had been lost by most Americans. So Glory was, re not only was it a good film, a well-made film, a well-acted film, a very compelling film. I think it's the best Civil War movie by, by quite a wide margin. Pharaoh's Army, a very good one too, a little movie. Not only was it a good film, it was a film that showed people something about the Civil War that was new. So it, was, it hit them, I think, a lot of them especially hard. And it's shown in a lot of schools now. So it, it has a continuing influence. The emancipation cause, as we'll see in just a minute when we go through our slides, they're not slides, that shows how old I am, our images. <laughs> the stuff up here. <laughs> the emancipation cause has become the default understanding of the war in Hollywood. The leading characters, the biggest actors, uh, they're all right on race uh, in these films, as we'll see. That's not the second big theme, though. The second big theme, and this one did surprise me. I wasn't really ready for this. The second big theme is that the union cause is absolutely invisible as far as Hollywood is concerned. Absolutely no conception, no attention to it, no sense of what it means, absolutely none. So that the, by far the most widely held understanding by the Civil War generation itself is gone. I shouldn't have been surprised by that because over the years of teaching, the hardest thing to get across to a class or to a group such as this is why someone in New Hampshire or Wisconsin would put on a uniform and risk his life to save the Union. Something as nebulous as that. There is no threat to New Hampshire, no direct threat. Confederate armies are not going to march into New Hampshire. They are not going to capture New York City. They are no threat to the heartland of Illinois and Iowa and Wisconsin. Why? Students. Others can understand if you're a Virginian and there are United States armies coming this way, yes, maybe I better put on a uniform and, and fight them. But why would two million men in the loyal states do that? And the majority of them, true volunteers. That's something we need to remind ourselves of too. The Civil War was fought predominantly by true volunteers by men who went into uniform before there was conscription on either the Confederate side, which came in the spring of 62, or the United States side, which came in the spring of 63. They are true volunteers. Why are they going into uniform? If you don't understand what union meant, you have no chance of understanding the American Civil War. None. Not a slim chance. 
Not a long odds chance, no chance. And uh, that, and so, and I can sense some of you saying, right, okay, I'm perfectly okay with that. <laughs> so is Hollywood. So is Hollywood. There is not even a hint, not the merest insinuation of what union means in a single film that I watched over the last 25 years. Absolutely none. Now, I understand that on some... I, Hollywood, first of all, I'm not naive. Hollywood doesn't... They don't sit down in their planning session and say, okay, we want to make a good dramatic film, but above all, we want the historians to be happy with how we do this. <laughs> we want to have every little thing just right. No, they don't talk that way. They want to make money. Okay, they want to make money. They probably don't even know what interpretation they're putting out in some ways. That doesn't matter to me because the fact that they put it out is what matters. The Freddie Fields, who was one of the principal people with glory, somebody said, well, you know, you got a couple of things wrong. The, the union, you know, they, they attacked the wrong way against Battery Wagner. They go from left to right, and everybody knows that they really went from right to left. And I can just see Fields, I mean, he, his head must have started to explode. He said... Listen, what we wanted to do was make a successful war movie with good characters and good dramatic action that would attract the He didn't even call it a civil war movie, a war movie that happens to be set during the Civil War. So I know that Hollywood's main goal isn't to get any interpretation right, and yet they do get certain interpretations, and the one they don't get is union. Uh, and I understand why they wouldn't stop in the middle of a film to have a couple of characters talk back and forth about, well, what does union mean to you? Well, let me tell you what union means to me. And the battle is raging, but the camera's on us, and we're talking about union and how really these ideas and those Europeans are going the wrong way, and I don't like slaveholding oligarchs, explosions, attacks. No, they're not going to do that. They will not do that. But they don't have to do that. You can do a great deal to convey a sense of national purpose of, in a very brief scene, in Gone with the Wind, for example, in the, the ballroom scene, the big ballroom scene, it's set, the guys in uniform, big picture of Jefferson Davis, and people sacrificing their wedding rings for the Confederate cause. That gets across a message. There is no comparable scene dealing with union in any film. Uh, the, the scene in Casablanca, where the German officers start to sing their songs and then the French get up humbled by German military power and start to sing La Marseillaise and you go, the camera goes from one passionate face to the next. That whole scene takes two minutes, two minutes, and it conveys a tremendously powerful message of this sense of being French and of the French nation being humbled and of people who are struggling with that. Two minutes. You could do it, but no one has done it or even attempted to do it with the union cause. That would come as a surprise to Abraham Lincoln to pick someone at random. What would come as an even bigger surprise, an even bigger surprise, is that Hollywood's conception of white United States soldiers in Civil War armies is almost identical to Hollywood's conception of United States soldiers in Vietnam 
in films produced in the 70s and 80s. They are a great menacing juggernaut, crunching across the countryside and pillaging and laying waste to civilians, to African Americans, uh, in Dances with Wolves, which is a Civil War movie, uh, to Native Americans. I mean, in Dances with Wolves, the the, the Union Army characters are unbelievably negatively portrayed. Unbelievable. Dunbar gets wounded early on, and, and the, the physicians, the Union physicians, say, oh, no, they, he's wounded, but they want to go coffee up, as they put it, before they do anything with him. The first Union officer he sees in the West is a man who's literally insane. He's insane. He rants and rants. He urinates on himself, and then in the end, he commits suicide as Dunbar go, rides away. And you think, well, God, that's the United States Army that we're seeing here. The other guys, they kill his horse. They kill his wolf. They do everything to Dunbar. It's an amazing, it's an amazing portrayal of United States soldiers. And it's common in other films. The only U.S. soldiers you see in Cold Mountain are a little patrol that come to a yeoman farmstead they terrorize the woman in that farmstead. They take her child out and put the child out in the cold wind. They won't even let her put a blanket around the child. And then the union officer goes in to rape her. And only when Inman comes back is that stopped. That is, it's as if Hollywood can only have one image of what a United States soldier is. And they just plunk it down whatever war they are that they happen to be in. And the United States soldiers are far more often than not portrayed that way. That would come as a surprise to a union cause population that absolutely felt triumphant about the fact that citizen soldiers had saved the republic. Citizen soldiers, soldiers whose primary goal was not to be a soldier anymore. That was the wonderful thing about why the war was won, said the unionists at the end of the war. These aren't hirelings. These aren't professionals. These are citizens who did what small r Republican citizens do in a crisis, and then they go back to being citizens again. That's why the United States is different, the Civil War generation would have said. You get almost no sense of that in modern films. Okay, now we're going to run through slides. We're going to go through each of the traditions. Lost cause, well, you'll, we'll start with lost cause. And here is a still from Birth of a Nation. Colonel Cameron has just assaulted the Union lines. It's an assault made just to get food for his men. It's a great uh, setup on how the Confederates don't have anything. Uh, there's a wooden tube of a cannon there that he's rammed the, uh, uh, the Confederate flag in, and there he's wounded. It's a, it's a tremendous part of the lost cause structure of Birth of a Nation, which presents a very positive picture of the Confederate civilization, of course, as you know. Uh, Cameron is one of the key people. All of the themes are there. The Union juggernaut fighting against hopeless odds for the Confederates, uh, <clears throat> very, very adeptly put together by D.W. Griffith in a way that was, that was a revelation to moviegoers in 1915. It, there is, there's almost no way, I don't know what would be the equivalent now, what kind of Hollywood shift would be the equivalent of people who had been used to little 10-minute films seeing a three-and-a-half-hour film 
uh, this sprawling film with a tremendous storyline. Birth of a Nation was, in, was, a, was a revelation to people, and the fact that this revelation that saw so many successes, it was controversial, as I'm sure you know at the time, but wildly pop took in more than a billion dollars when you adjust uh, the revenues for where we are now, and was still in theatrical release in 1948. 1948, even though it was a silent film. A very powerful lost cause. There we go. <laughs> Gone with the Wind, the famous scene at the railroad depot in Atlanta as the Confederates are defending the city. This was the longest tracking shot in Hollywood history to this point. And you've all seen it. It starts low and comes back and back and back and back. And right at the end, you get the St. Andrew's Cross battle flag, uh, which incidentally was not the stars and bars. Uh, the, the, the nitwits who fly Confederate flag, whenever the Ku Klux Klan nitwits get together and fly uh, this flag and call it the stars and bars, I can only wonder uh, whether they have 15-watt bulbs or 16-watt bulbs that they're working with. <laughs> this is the St. Andrew's Cross battle flag, and it makes, you couldn't frame a better scene to bring together the representation of the nation and the sacrifice of the nation's citizenry, right there. 1,500 actual people, seven or 800 dummies uh, scattered around. They couldn't get enough extras. But the impact is tremendous in one short scene. Uh, absolutely a lost cause take, a perfect lost cause take, because we know they're not going to win. Even though they're sacrificing at this level, we know they are not going to win. Not going to win. Here's Shenandoah. There's Jimmy Stewart, our man Jimmy Stewart, uh, with five of his six sons. He has six sons. Each of these has an actual name. Uh, the youngest one is just called Boy. I guess they just ran out of ideas uh, <laughs> by that point. What should we call him? Hell, I don't care. <laughs> Let's just call him Boy. He'll answer to that. <laughs> so here's Jimmy Stewart. Where does Jimmy live? He lives in the Shenandoah Valley. It's the summer of 1864. 64. There's been a Confederate draft since the spring of 62, which took everybody. His boys aren't in uniform because they don't want to be, because Jimmy is not on board with the Confederacy, because Jimmy doesn't have any slaves, and he doesn't believe in supporting a cause that is all about slavery. This is a real departure from the lost cause uh, understanding of what the war was about. He tries to stay aloof because he's not interested in taking part in a fight that he says is no part of his life. He, he'll ask his sons, some of them want to go in the service, and he says, are they on our land yet? And they say no. He says, then it doesn't concern us if they're not on our land yet. They eventually get on his land, as some of you know. Uh, but this, is a, this, this marks a shift. There's also a key black character in this film, a young African-American guy named Gabriel, who is, is a slave early on, but then takes his freedom and ends up as a United States soldier at the end. That's a real shift, too. So this is Shenandoah, not a good movie, sort of hard to watch now, uh, but it's worth watching because of what it tells us about Hollywood's moving in a little bit different direction in terms of the lost cause. Here we come up to <clears throat> Ron Maxwell's uh, cinematic translation of The Killer Angels, of Michael Shaw's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Killer Angels. We have Martin Sheen there on the left, 
uh, an interesting choice to be Robert E. Lee, and, and Tom Berenger over there on the right playing James Longstreet with a beard that changed in every scene. It looked like, it looked like Tom had about five squirrels hanging off his chin who were arranged differently each time. There are, this is a film that has some lost cause touches. One is, of course, the centrality of Gettysburg. Gettysburg was not nearly as important during the Civil War as it became retrospectively. It was not the great turning point of the war, not even, I mean, nothing like the great turning point of the war. People, it's a comforting thought. People like easy formulations. Okay, the war goes halfway, then you have Gettysburg. That's the turning point. And then all the Confederates get out their calendars, circle April 9th, and say, only 160 days till Appomattox. 159 days to Appomattox. God, I wish it would speed up. No. This treats it that way, which is a lost cause touch. Its focus on R.E. Lee is a lost cause touch, but it's very favorable to Longstreet, as the novel was. And, of course, Longstreet was anathema to lost cause people. They used him as a way to get Lee off the hook at Gettysburg. So there's a little bit of a mix, but it's not really a lost cause film. And here we have a new Robert E. Lee in Gods and Generals. It's now Robert Duvall, who's too old to be Robert E. Lee here. Uh, Martin Sheen, too short to be Robert E. Lee. <laughs> well, Duvall's too short, too. Here, we do have two key lost cause scenes involving these two men. That's Stonewall Jackson on the left and R.E. Lee on the right. This is a powerful lost cause film, 2003. Uh, it's quite remarkable that that late you got it. In one key scene, Lee is, is up on the high ground on the right bank of the Rappahannock looking across uh, the Rappahannock toward Ferry Farm where George Washington was and, and toward Stafford Heights and he says those Yankees just don't get it. They don't understand what place means, what, what family means, what land means. He draws a real, it, it's the old stereotype of all Yankees care about is money and they don't care about family and kinfolk mean nothing and they're just grasping, cold, humorless, you fill in the blanks. Jackson has an even greater speech. He says at one point, well, if, we, if the Yankees lose the war, they'll just go home and make money again. But if we lose the war, we lose everything. And then he talks about all the things. Again, one is a real cause, one is a shallow, why are they here? They must not even know why they're here if they're just going to go home and make money again. Key scenes in Gods and Generals. None more so than this. There's Jackson again, and he's hiring a cook. And so here he has an African-American guy who, like Jackson, is from Lexington. And they have this incredible scene where they bond as Confederates and talk about, they have another scene too, they talk about the future of the Confederacy and how General Lee is talking about getting rid of slavery and so forth. It's an amazing sequence of scenes that tries to get the Confederacy right on race. Here's a tip for you. Don't waste time doing that. I mean, you can't get the Confederacy right on race. You just can't. It's like trying to get Americans right on race in the mid-19th century. By our standards, everybody in the mid-19th century is a racist. That's not a word they would have used. Would be deeply prejudiced by our... They're in a different time. They're in a different place. Come to grips with that and then move on. Uh, trying to get the Confederacy right on race and slavery is just the most... Uh, I don't know. I, I guess... You can either buy a hammer and hit yourself in the head, or you can do that. And the, both of them will yield just about as much satisfaction. It's like this notion that there are, I know I'm ranting a little bit now, this idea 
that there were 50,000 black Confederate soldiers. Oh, really? I know what Robert E. Lee would have said about that. He would have said, where the hell are they? Send some of them to me. How come I don't have any of these 50,000 black Confederate soldiers? Because I'm running out of white soldiers. Send me some of these black soldiers. Are they in Texas? How come, how come I don't ever see any of them? A book came out in the wake of Gods and Generals. This is my favorite title for a Civil War book in the last 20 years. Stonewall Jackson, colon, The Black Man's Friend. <laughs> I know black people across the Confederacy were praying, I hope General Jackson wins the war because that will be good for me. <laughs> Here we have Cold Mountain. This is an indication of how far the lost cause has slipped off the radar screen in Hollywood's view. Here's the expression of the Confederate state in Cold Mountain. Teague and his albino son. <laughs> Here's something else you can count. Hollywood likes nothing so much as they get one idea and it's never gone. If you see an albino person in a Hollywood movie, watch out. <laughs> They are not on your side. <laughs> and that is certainly the case in Cold Mountain. What do these guys do? They wreak havoc in the countryside. They literally torture women and yeoman farmsteads. They indiscriminately kill people and plunder. This is the Confederate state. Not a single attractive Confederate character in Cold Mountain cares anything about the Confederacy. Nothing. They are bitterly against it from a physician treating wounded who would have been of the slaveholding class probably who, who says, look at all those poor duped men out there just dying in this cause for a, a rag that represents slavery. Inman doesn't like it. He's the key character. Our heroine, who's from Charleston, South Carolina, Sort of on board with secession, Charleston was. Some of you might remember. <laughs> her, second, her second speech, she gets to Cold Mountain where the air is clear and, you know, the mountains are smoky. And uh, Hollywood has these, these wonders. I love in Dances with Wolves, Dunbar's asked. He, they, they say he can be deployed anywhere he wants to go because he's been heroic. Not really, but they think he has. And he says, I want to go to the West before it's gone. What? <laughs> Americans were worried the West was about to be gone in 1864? Do you really think that's true? <laughs> I, I can tell you don't think that's as outrageous as I do. <laughs> I don't really care. <laughs> she comes to Western North Carolina and says she's so glad to be away from Charleston with its corsets, she's liberated, and its cotton, doesn't like natural fibers, I guess, <laughs> and slavery. That's when the movie lost me, lost me right at that moment. She is anti-slavery. She is from Charleston. 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 <laughs> really and truly. <laughs> they didn't even have secret abolitionist clubs in Charleston. <laughs> Not even embedded abolitionist clubs in Charleston, I can promise you. But our heroine, she would have been in one. 
All right, the emancipation cause. Here we have the scene just before they attacked the wrong way against Battery Wagner. <laughs> Denzel Washington, we have Tripp, and we have several of the key characters there. This is really, as I said, this is a, this is a tremendous point of shift in how Hollywood understands the American Civil War. From here on, and this is an important movie beyond that, uh, any of you have seen the USCT Soldiers Monument up in the Shaw District in Washington, for example, where you go into the little plaza and there are 200,000 names. It's sort of the, the same uh, theme as the, the Vietnam Memorial. All the names of all the African-American men who served in the United States Army during the war. This movie explains why that's there. I can't, I can't believe that would have happened without this. This had a tremendous impact, not only on Hollywood, uh, but beyond Hollywood. And it shows up in, uh, in, in films beyond that. Here we have <coughs> Joshua Chamberlain and the gnome-like little Irish sergeant Buster Kilrain uh, in Talk About a Stereotype in Gettysburg. And Chamberlain explains what the war is about. This is what the United States is fighting about. There was some interest in union early on, he says, but now it's a war unlike any war in history. This is a war to set men free. This is a war to kill slavery. Well. That is probably how Joshua Chamberlain thought about it. It is absolutely not how most of the men in the Army of the Potomac who fought at Gettysburg would have thought about it. They would have said this is a war about union. And so viewers, since this is the only time in the movie when this is discussed really, his little brother discusses it one time too, when he says the same thing, oh, it's a war to end slavery, he pauses and says, oh, and about union too. That's absolutely backwards, but people paying attention if they're interested in what the war is about, they would come away from Gettysburg with a sense that by the midpoint of the war, it is a war to kill slavery in the minds of the United States soldiers. I hate to inflict Richard Gere on you, but I'm going to anyway. This is from, this is from Summersby, which is a, a take on the return of Martin Gere, as many of you know. He's a former Confederate soldier who was imprisoned in a United States prisoner of war camp, which tended to be an embittering experience. Uh, for the men who were sent to camps on either side. But he has the most modern racial attitudes. He's the protagonist, he and Jodie Foster, and they both, they try to set up a kind of uh, utopian community that takes no notice of race in Tennessee after the war. Again, it's just so spectacularly ludicrous uh, that you have, to, you have to just swallow hard to get past that, and then you can watch the rest of the movie. But it's typical of how Hollywood has chosen to, to deal with race and emancipation. Same thing even in Gods and Generals, which is mainly a lost cause film, but when Union characters talk about what they're fighting about, and it falls on Joshua Chamberlain again here, and there he is with his brother Tom, uh, it's the same thing. He explains <clears throat> that it's a war about killing slavery, and when his brother Tom uses the term darky at one place, he gets a lecture from his big brother Darky would have been the mildest kind of word that many mid-19th century Americans would have used. It's just we need to be honest about that. But this film makes a point uh, of once again reminding viewers that on the Union side, it's a war about emancipation. Here's the key scene, uh, the emancipation part of <coughs> Cold Mountain. There we have them, our Australian heroine who couldn't wait to get out of uh, and whose fingernails are clean through the whole movie, incidentally, even when nobody else's are. There she's talking to Inman, and when Inman says he's going into the army, this is very early in the film, she mocks him, absolutely mocks him for thinking about going into the Confederate army. 
and that's a theme that goes through the whole film. All the characters, whether it's, it's the, uh, whether it's Ruby or Robin, all of them, all the characters you might care about in Cold Mountain are anti-Confederacy. Uh, and they have very, and they, as uh, in Summersby, she has very modern views on race, what we would call very, very modern views on race, which would be absolutely uh, out of character for someone of her class and place and time. Let's talk a little bit about reconciliation, which is evident in a number of, of Civil War films. This is a scene from How the West Was Won. One segment of How the West Was Won is on the Civil War, as many of you know. This is a 1962 film. It was directed by John Ford. And here we have a scene at the Battle of Shiloh. George Pappard is the Union soldier, and Russ Tamblin uh, is a character who doesn't, he's just known as the Texas rebel uh, in the film. And they find themselves at Shiloh, kind of off by themselves, and at first, they're going to try to kill each other, and then they start to talk to each other. And one says, well, what are, what's this war about for you? And he says, I, I don't know what it's about. How about for you? I don't know what it's about. So then they just sit down. They don't know what to do. What should we do? Russ Tamlin says, let's go to California. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He doesn't say, let's go to California, dude. Uh, but he's... <laughs> But he does say, let's go to California. I find that a hilarious piece of dialogue, but apparently others didn't. But it's a, the message is, these are just Americans. They're Americans thrown into this terrible situation. They don't even know why they're killing each other. And they're asked to kill each other. Perfect reconciliation scene. Later, the Texas rebel, they look over to the right a little ways, and who do they see? U.S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. And he decides he better kill them. And when he decides that, then George Papard has to kill him. And our reconciliationist moment ends tragically. <laughs> Here's reconciliation in the film Gettysburg. Here we have Lewis Addison Armstead at the end of the Pickett-Pettigrew assault. He's run into Joshua Chamberlain's little brother, Tom. And all that's on Armstead's mind here, it's not that he, this great assault has failed. It's not that he's dying. What's on his mind is that he is afraid he's offended his old friend, Winfield Scott Hancock, who is a friend from the old army, as they called it, pre-war army, who's commanding the Union Second Corps. Uh, that's the part of the line where they are there. It's a perfect example of reconciliation. These old friends pulled apart by events they had nothing to do with and didn't really embrace. And in the end, that friendship has become more important than the causes they were fighting for. This is from the 1950 version of Red Badge of Courage, Audie Murphy playing Henry Fleming. Uh, well, I won't point everybody out. It's Bill Malden, the great, the great cartoonist uh, from World War II and later is right there. This, is a, this presents, we're moving to the Union cause now, this presents a very positive view of Union soldiers on the whole. Henry Fleming has his, his internal debate about being uh, a coward. But the Union soldiers are portrayed positively here. They come to a yeoman farmstead in this film. One of the Union soldiers tries to steal some things from the woman who lives there, and she comes out and starts uh, hitting at him with her broom. And all the Union soldiers take her side rather than plundering, trying to rape, trying to do the things that they do in more recent films. Here we have... Uh, there's John Wayne as Sherman and Harry Morgan as Grant. And if you look back in the corner up there... There's the Texas rebel and George Pappard. Uh, they are able to listen. There are very few films that highlight top Union 
commanders this way. You get Lee and Jackson and Longstreet and others much more so in recent movies. Here is one. John Ford puts the two great uh, Union soldiers together here, and they have a nice and very sympathetic exchange. Uh, viewers would treat it as very sympathetic uh, pro-Union. But by the time we get Dunbar out uh, in the Dakotas, there's Kevin Costner before he has shed the last vestiges of his uh, ties to the United States. He hasn't really become Dances with Wolves yet. This is a film, as I said earlier, that just has the most uh, unrelievedly negative portrait of United States soldiers, except for Dunbar. And he has one key scene where he's helping the Sioux village where he's living defend itself against the, the other uh, Native American war party that's coming their way. And he, and he has this piece of dialogue where he says, now I understand something worth fighting for. It's not something empty like Union or even like emancipation. This is, now I understand why someone would fight. He has to get as far away as possible from that blue uniform and from all the trappings of, of the United States uh, before he can understand something that's worth fighting for. And I'll finish with this. This is a film that not very many people saw. It's called Seraphim Falls. It has A-list actors. There's Liam Neeson uh, facing the camera there. It's a kind of chase movie. Uh, it's set in northern New Mexico, so I love it, since I think, that's, I think that's the most beautiful landscape in the world. They chase, they chase, they chase. We finally get a flashback that understands why Neeson's character, who's a former Confederate colonel, so hates, so hates uh, his great antagonist there, who's Pierce Brosnan, who has his back to us. And it was related to this scene where, again, a Union patrol comes to Neeson's farm late in the war. And in the course of their being there, Neeson's young wife goes up into the house uh, because their child is up there. One of the Union soldiers has set the house on fire. The child is in danger of burning up. She goes to save the child, and she has the child in the window with the flames uh, all around her. He's trying to get up to help her in this scene, and the Union soldiers will not let him go. And she burns up. She and the child literally burn up before their eyes. And Brosnan turns to one of the men and says, I thought you said there were no people in that house. And the guy looks to him and says, they're only rebels. You know, what difference does it make? And the Union soldiers, the last scene is the Union soldiers setting fire to other buildings and killing livestock and otherwise plundering uh, Liam Neeson's place. There's the, there's the US Army. There's the Army that saved the Union and killed slavery as Hollywood imagines it uh, in the early 21st century. I ran a little bit too long, but now I'm finished. Uh, do we have time for any? We do have. To, so if you have a couple of questions or arguments or corrections or whatever, I'll respond to them. I know they've set up mics for you, but I'm also capable of repeating a question. <laughs> the question is, do I, I talked about the change in Hollywood's treatment of soldiers in the wake of Vietnam. What about in the wake of 9-11? Have I seen a more positive portrayal. I, I haven't seen many of the Iraq and later films. I've seen a couple, and in a couple, I would say they're still in a Vietnam mode, where the US soldiers are still pretty menacing and pretty, but I haven't seen all of them, and, and so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really up to speed to comment on that seriously, so I won't, so I won't. Yes? Yes, well, I comment on Ken Burns' series. I, I like Ken Burns' series. I can't, if I hear a show can farewell one more time, I might go do something. But 
I think that it's, I think he walked a very fine line, and the fact that he alienated so many people, he alienated people who said, oh, it's all, nothing but battles, and others said, oh, it's nothing but emancipation, and it's this and it's that. Well, actually, I think he did a, a pretty good job of maneuvering through this tremendous Civil War minefield, and I think it's well done. I think, I think it's, um, it, I think it holds up very well. It's so simple in the way it's put together. I mean, now we've seen too many things like that, but at the time, and still, I think it works. I think he did. I think he good, did a good job. Uh, he, he he stumbled onto Shelby Foot, and he and 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 used him a lot. I mean, Shelby just sounds like he was there, and of course he knows what it was like. And he he has a couple of he has a couple of classic lost cause moments. Shelby Foot does. He has the one where he looks down and says, "You know, South never could have won that war. North fought that war with one hand tied behind his back." All it would have had to do is bring the other hand out from behind their back to win it. Which misses the whole point, of course. Uh, they barely were willing to have the one hand out to win it in the end. But it's, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest and, and, and Abraham Lincoln are the two authentic geniuses of the Civil War. I hit my head on the wall when he said that. But I've recovered. I think it's, I think it's well done. I think it's well done. Yes. I absolutely don't mean that. The question is, by union, do I mean the encroaching federal monster taking over all power from the states? Absolutely not. That's one of the reasons the union cause is not treated. The people on the left and the right are upset with different aspects of the union war. Some on the right believe that what, and there are even books that argue that what, here's, here's what the Civil War was really about, was Abraham Lincoln and some of these Republicans got together and said, let's have a big war so we can make the central government intrusive and torment people for the next 200 years. <laughs> that's what the Civil War is about. And then you can go on the left, no, that's not what the Civil War is about. The Civil War is about creating a great military machine that's so powerful that it can crunch everything in its path and then it will go out into the world and wreak havoc militarily and economically in the most the most soul-killing imperialistic manner. Okay? <laughs> I consider those equally demented, uh, to use an unloaded term. Y you can only imagine that that's what's going on by not reading anything from the Civil War. And of course, a lot of people do that. They're some of the knowledgeable, all the people on the 24-hour newscasts are that way. What do you know about the past? Not a damn thing, but here's what I think. <laughs> Let me tell you what I think. My historical memory goes back to Tuesday morning, but I want to tell you why I think we've never been as divided as we are now in the 2008 election. Never been as divided. I can think of at least one time when we were more divided uh, than in the 2008 election. I'm pretty sure we're more divided. Nobody's ever been attacked the way President Obama's being attacked. Really? Abraham Lincoln would say, tell me again what Obama's worst day was like. <laughs> I want that day every day. That's what I want. I want that every day. The, the breathtaking ignorance about our past leads us into these situations where we imagine, how will we ever get this? It's never been like this before. We've never confronted anything like this before. Of course we have. We've confronted the most terrible things in our past and always emerged. 
And I think it, and I'm, and I think it actually hurts by creating this sense of constant upheaval and almost despair because we do not understand that none of this stuff is new. None of it is new. None of it. Oh, immigration has never been an issue like it is now. Really? <laughs> Are you kidding me? When my great-grandfather Gallagher arrived here in 1860 and was military age but couldn't be drafted because he wasn't a citizen of the entire white military age pool in 1860, 30% of them were born outside the United States. 30% of all the military age white males in the United States. Immigration is nothing new in the United States. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. <laughs> but they're always smiling. <laughs> I just can't stand it. I say a pox on all the 24-hour news channels, every one of them, every one of them. I want to send them to a work farm, uh, to a work farm. <laughs> yes. Am, am I a consultant on the upcoming Lincoln film? No, I'm not. I'm not. And I wouldn't be of any use to them. Here's how Hollywood consults. I read this. I, I won't even talk about that. Here's how they consult. What do you think about this? Well, you do have him with a beard, and that's important, and he's tall. But other than that, there are some things wrong. Thank you for your comments, and then they just go on. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's frustrating. Life's full of enough frustrations. Yes. Yeah. I'll do the second one first. What's the impact of Samuel Clemens or Ambrose Bierce on how we understand the war? I would say not one American in what? Let's pick a number. 200,000 has ever heard of Ambrose Bierce. And if you said the incident at Owl Creek Bridge, they would go, huh? And now Samuel Langhorne Clemens, they, I don't think many people would connect him with the Civil War either. So I would say their impact on how we understand the Civil War is marginal. Uh, in terms of Western Virginia's response to secession, it's a perfect way to get at the fact that there was not a monolithic South. South and Confederacy are not synonyms. They're used as North and Union are not synonyms. The North did not fight the South during the Civil War. The United States, which included four slaveholding states, fought the Confederacy, which included 11 of the 15 slaveholding states. So those, those, the, the way we frame the war takes us off base to begin with. Then we taught Southerner and Confederate are not synonyms. Southerner is everybody living in the slaveholding states, and that includes four million African Americans who are not Confederates, and several million white Southerners who were not on board with secession and with the Confederacy, and many of them lived in the Trans-Allegheny regions of Virginia. Virginia is a big state now, and we all know it used to be a lot bigger state, and we'd be so much poorer in terms of jokes uh, if it hadn't been for the Civil War. <laughs> But it shows that there was a tremendous opposition to secession. Now, West Virginia, if they'd really let people vote, who wants to be in West Virginia or Kanawha, as it was originally going to be called, or not, it wouldn't be nearly as big as it is now. They added a bunch of, of counties, including the two where the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad dipped below the Potomac River and then went back up. Harper's Ferry, Charlestown, would not have voted, Shepherdstown would not have voted to go into West Virginia.
but they wanted the B&O in the United States, all of it. It's important. And so they added those counties, and they added about a dozen other counties, rounded it up. Uh, so there would have been a West Virginia. It wouldn't have been as big as it is now if they'd actually allowed people who lived there to vote. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to get at the divisions within states. And Virginia was, Virginia's secession convention, as I'm sure many of you know, voted right down to the end, not to secede. Right down to the end. What changed it was Lincoln's call for volunteers uh, in the wake of the firing on Fort Sumter. Yes. Last question. Do I consider the photographs of Matthew Brady to be history or memory? And the pedant in me is forced to say, first of all, Matthew Brady didn't take any photographs during the Civil War. All those photographs that say photo by Brady were taken by one of his brilliant young photographers out in the field. But do I consider them history or memory? I consider them both because I think, I think that some are actually taken just of what you saw, and they show, us, uh, they show us things about battlefields that no one had ever seen before, for example. On the other hand, how they were used gets into the field of memory, and the fact that the photographers staged a lot of them also makes it hard to figure out. The, the most, one of the most famous images from Gettysburg is the one of what the original Alexander Gardner took at the original caption was, Confederate sharpshooter in Devil's Den, killed by the concussion, not a mark on him, and he's in this little place where rocks come together, and, and there he is with a peaceful look on his face and his musket leaning against part of the rock outcropping. Well, it's very evocative, very evocative. That guy was actually killed about 30 yards away, and Brady, or Brady's guy first photographed him over there, then took him over to this other part of Devil's Den, leaned him against the rocks, arranged the musket just the way he wanted it, photographed him again, and then made up this completely bogus caption. So there is memory right from the spot. The other picture, I would say, would, be, would come closer to being history. And some of the, I mean, so it's, 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 it's a great question, and it's, there's not an easy answer to it. I think it can be both. Thank you very much.